And it's another Tuesday, Hope Time, with Jan Bartlett. Today, Anzac Day. The message is, reclaim remembrance, remember, don't repeat. With the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, Dr Sue Wareham. The first round of the French elections with Nick McClellan. The second part of the recent history of Colombia with Sasha Gillies-Lakakis. The crisis in Sri Lanka with veteran activist Lionel Bopajay. But first, let's hear it from Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, listener, when a memory lapse became the critical ideological issue that will determine the next government, keeping us riveted to the set pieces of electoral nothings to add to the wall-to-wall coverage identical every day of train killing. What exciting times. And we did hear, no, we didn't, no, I have to start again, I just feel like I want to cut that bit out for you because it was from last week. All right, just, okay. Yeah, okay. One, two, three, four. Right, except I haven't got back to the top. Here we go now, say it again. One, <laughs> one, two, three, four. A week, Jan, when a memory lapse became the critical ideological issue that would determine the next government, keeping us riveted to the set pieces of electoral nothings to add to the wall-to-wall coverage identical every day of train killing. What exciting times. And big supremo, Scuttlebem or Lashson, a.k.a. Scummo, echoed by the whole coalition's team's most pertinent policy statement is that Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Anthony Albinguzi has no experience as Big Supremo because he has never been Big Supremo. And how many times were you Big Supremo before you became Big Supremo, Scummo? I was close enough to be able to stab them in the back before they knew what hit them. Well, he's clearly more qualified. Although our point about avoiding the news or even leaving the country for a few weeks was destroyed day one when Anthony had that nation-defining memory lab, stuffed up those figures, and Scummo leapt on this as proof Anthony is not fit to be Big Supremo. And Anthony admitted he was wrong and said this proved he is fit to be Big Supremo because Scummo never admits to a mistake but always blames someone or something else. And thus day one ended with the exchange of big innovative ideas and exciting vision we can expect every one of the remaining 32 days. 32 days, which we all know is going to seem like 32 months. Although at least the government gets its language right, like announcing 220 million to continue the destruction of our native forests. 6.6 mil of which, Scummo said, would assist the caring business class connect with cutting edge research. Sadly, after the cutting has been done, and would also address problems with supply chain saws. Oh, sorry, supply chains. See, tell it as it is. Interesting that. As Scummo and the Coalition commit to destroying native forests, their solution to the coal bit of Coalition is to plant more trees without reducing the emissions one iota. And we can be sure they'll make sure all these reports of the offset schemes being offset scams, allowing the polluters to profit even more from pollution, are investigated and fixed up. Yet there's really nothing to fix up because there may not be such a thing as climate change anyway, even if Anthony felt a very cool climate change from Monday morning to Monday night. And look, not knowing the unemployment figure didn't prevent him from announcing an important policy for the unemployed. He will 
do nothing for them. Leave the pitiful doll pitiful. So following last week's announcement abandoning a tax on family trusts, which some people ludicrously think are tools for the filthy rich to avoid paying any tax at all, Anthony can boast the balance he promises, a policy for the poorest of the poor and a policy for the filthiest rich of the filthy rich. And anyway, Anthony anyway, it was the doll bludgers who got me into trouble in the first place. They, they can't have it both ways. Of course, the filthy rich don't need a family trust to avoid paying any tax. Take our fun, fun, fun entertainment behemoths, the casinos. Following all the criminal activity exposed by sundry inquiries into Jamie Puker's Crook Casino, the current NSW inquiry into the Star Avoider Casino shows they're running neck and neck in the ripping off stakes. With a headline this week, Star may have failed to pay state taxes. Come on, may have? It's odds on. A far safer bet than the odds at the casinos themselves, where it's odds on the house will win. All that lovely, lovely tax-free income. After all, it was Jamie's dad, Lord Kerry of Waterhouse, who famously said, Anyone who pays their taxes is mad, bloody mad. And the Mormon church... Mormon money for us so-called church has been sprung ripping trillions off the public purse by siphoning all donations and compulsory tithes by its congregations into some charitable fund, meaning those donors can avoid taxes that otherwise have to pay. All very well, charity, caring for others. All very well, if a bloody whistleblower hadn't pointed out it doesn't operate any charities nor donate any of the tax-free lovely, lovely income to any charity. Showing charity, the government thus far has thought it not worth worrying about when there's real rip-off merchants to monitor like doll bludgers and climate activists and evil, evil trade unions and lazy, avaricious workers. Like our own state forest lot, whose role in life is to hand native forest to the Chainsaw Brigade, which hired a private detective to spy on an activist whose crime was to think native forests and their ecology should be preserved. A terrorist with no concern whatever for the great economic benefits of tearing down those forests, which otherwise would just stand there doing absolutely nothing like rivers which just flow along doing absolutely nothing. And amid the myriad of government appointments on the eve of the election, of, to put it kindly, like-minded appointees, and even extending appointments that would have, wouldn't run, have run out until mid-term next government anyway, but phew, why risk the chance of a socialist government putting the same caring business class people into those positions to prove it is not biased? And anyway, union bosses and lazy avaricious workers and environmentalists and goody-goodies generally are incapable of carrying out those roles. Superannuation, a perfect example where they, okay, okay, perform better than the major financial institutions, but only because they cheat by not charging exorbitant fees, absolute anathema to the greatest little economic order of them all. But we've diverted. Rivers doing nothing. Well, one of the appointments in the last days was by Fossil Minister Keith Pitpony to the $450,000 a year position as CEO of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. Andrew McConville, real name from the Troubluwazi Petroleum Production and Exploration Profits Association, who earlier worked in the major agriculture sector, sector so he can be guaranteed to put the environmental interests of the Murray-Darling first.
while recognising, of course, there's no economic benefit in just letting the river flow, like it flowed for eons pre-1788. Not quite flowing as well as it could, the ocean at Barras Island, 75k off the Pilbara coast in western Trublawazi, after an oil spill on a Santosas, the prophet's oil and gas facility, exposed the negativity and anti-Trublawazi attitudes of these environmentalists. Santosas, the prophets, explained quite properly it was a light sheen on the sea surface covering a small area. The condensate evaporated naturally within 24 hours and the impact to the environment is negligible. Their perfectly logical explanation and that's where the matter should have been let rest, done and dusted. Okay, okay, the Transport Department then announced the light sheen small area bit was about 25,000 litres of light sheen small area and some bloody whistleblower again said Santosas had known there was a weakness in the pipe that burst but did nothing about it and worse, Maggie Wood of the Western Trublawazi Conservation Council displayed a total lack of respect for a great corporation like Santosas by declaring with no proof whatever that... In no way can a 25,000 litre oil spill be described as negligible. It took place in an area highly important for marine biodiversity with vulnerable turtle populations. God, they always dig up that sort of stuff, don't they? As if Santos us wouldn't care about those things. And, and worse, worse, she then twisted the knife with, this is the same Santos us the prophets, which less than 10 years ago was allowed to go unpunished for a 250,000 litre oil spill in Queensland, only narrowly avoiding a widespread contamination of nearby water systems. The best we can say about that twisting of the knife into a great corporation is that she has something in common with Scummo. Oh, not the attacking the great corporation bit, but the knife bit where they don't see it coming. And it gets even worse for poor Santosas, a wonderful plan bringing huge economic benefits to all of us to develop its Barossa gas project northwest of Trublawazi and pipe the gas 300 kilometres through the TWC to an LNG plant in Darwin. A loans deal with a Korean bank and an insurance company all but stitched up and Santosas gets stitched up itself by these economy-wrecking Tiwi Islanders who have taken out an injunction in a South Korean court to block the loan on the specious grounds that Santosas has not consulted them. Tiwi Islanders, get on with playing football, which you're bloody good at, and stop interfering in business matters that are no concern of yours. Well, maybe a small concern of theirs, but, th but the gas should contribute to their island sinking further and so it won't be a problem for them anyway long term or maybe even short term. But amid all this gloom, let's finish on a positive note. Caring Business Class Relations Minister Makalia Kosh, the workers, will attempt to revive the Caring Business Class Relations legislation sunk in the previous government. The government is committed to our policies that allow businesses to create jobs, improve productivity and drive wages growth. Important reforms like scrapping that better off overall test give the boot the boot. 
important little reforms like allowing hospitality and retail workers to work extra hours without overtime payments and lots of similar benefits to workers who along with evil unions just can't recognise that all their caring employers and their caring employers government care about is solving the problem of slow wages growth will not accept that the only way to get wages growth is to slash wages and conditions. When, as Pete Seeger wrote, when will they ever learn? Finally, on the good news front, the wise egalitarians on the High Court bench ruled this week that the evil construction unions and their members can be fined the maximum amount, amount for even the most minor of breaches because of their evil law-breaking history like insisting illegally that workers on construction sites who enjoy the wages and conditions the unions have won should wait for it, sit down, this is so outrageous, should be in the union, contrary to the inalienable God-given right of workers not to join a union. Congratulations to their honours and the Smash the Construction Union's Jackboots Commission for their commitment to the law. And let's hope this Easter, Michaela and their honours and the Jackboots Commission can put an end to the sickening way evil unions and lazy avaricious workers so crucify their caring employers. Oh, and to add to the cheer, 32 days to go. Good afternoon. And thanks to Kevin Healy. Hi, I'm Monero from Fitzroy Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. Next Monday, Anzac Day will be commemorated throughout Australia. But do Australians know what they're commemorating? As Sue Wareham, President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, wrote, This Anzac Day, as on every other, we will hear of the horrors of war to which many of our service people have been exposed. Horrors that certainly call into question any notion of us assuming the title Homo sapiens. We will honour the fallen and utter the hollow words, lest we forget, as we carefully forget every lesson that the last century and more of bloodshed could teach us. Absent will be any reflection on how the slaughter and maiming of a young generation came about over a hundred years ago, how it could have been prevented and the lost opportunities for peace between 14 and 18, and the measures that could be put in place now to prevent yet another descent into global confrontation, this time with perhaps more terminal consequences. It's as if these things don't matter on Anzac Day or on any other day. A number of years ago, MAPW organised a meeting on Anzac Eve, and one of the features was a message from Turkey. Quote, On the commemoration of the Anzac Day, IPPNW Turkey affiliate members join our Australian colleagues and peace activists to warn governments and public on the devastating consequences of war and on the vital importance of universal joint efforts for peace. In the imperialist-led, unjust and inhumane Gallipoli War, Turkey lost about 200,000 lives. Many of them were young doctors, engineers, educated manpower to raise their civilization. Young fathers, boys of families and fiancés died to defend their motherland and people. The invading forces also lost nearly 150,000 dear lives. Amongst them were Australians and New Zealanders. 
Sue is back with me today to talk about a different line on Anzac Day. Reclaim, remember, remember, don't repeat. Medical Association for Prevention of War started a campaign recently, although it was a continuation of a previous campaign. Previously, we'd called our campaign Commemorate, Don't Commercialise, which was focused and is still focused on the Australian War Memorial to encourage and urge them to get the weapons makers out of the memorial and to stop accept, accepting their funding because their funding is the profits of war. So, and we've had, uh, we believe, some success there. We're continuing that campaign with a different title, Reclaim Remembrance, and the title is is a little bit broader and focuses on various aspects of Australia's war commemoration but is really urging that we again get the commercialisation out of it and get the jingoism and nationalism out of it and really focus on commemorating our war dead, remembering them and honouring them as best we can which must include looking at the lessons to be learnt from Australia's wars that Australia and other nations, um, in fact other nations much more so than Australia, have suffered in times of war. So we're really trying to, to learn some lessons and try to avoid the mistakes of the past. Just stay with the memorial for a couple of minutes. You had at least one success getting one of the arms manufacturer out. The other one was due to be renewed in April. What's happening with that one? Well, we're uncertain. The latter one you mentioned is a contract between the Australian War Memorial and Lockheed Martin, and that contract was due to expire on 7 April. So we still don't know whether that has been renewed or whether it's going to be renewed. So we're un- uncertain about that. But we'll be keeping on with the campaign regardless because there are other weapons manufacturers whose money is accepted at the memorial still. Bigger issue than any one company, um, but the Lockheed Martin was, was a big part of it because they're the biggest weapons maker in the world. The previous one you referred to was BAE Systems, who previously had naming rights at the War Memorial Theatre, which is a pretty shocking thing when you think about it. You go into the War Memorial, if you're going into the theatre there where presentations, etc. are done, then the labelling outside the theatre was BAE Systems Theatre, which is terrible. And BAE Systems is a big British weapons maker and they're a key supplier to the war in Yemen by supplying the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, so contributing to a huge humanitarian disaster. Anyway, the contract between the Memorial and BA Systems Theatre has been uh, BA Systems has been terminated, and the theatre now is just called appropriately the Memorial Theatre. We're very very pleased about that development, but there's there's a way to go. Strong resistance from the War Memorial uh, Director and the Council and not much support for, in fact, no support uh, for our position from the current, from the government at present. How many other arms manufacturers are featured in the War Memorial? It's in fact from the, from what the memorial says on their website, it is now even very difficult to know who they currently accept funding from because they'll have a list of sponsors and donors, but 
they no longer are required to list who are current donors, which, you know, who, who did the memorial get funding from in this particular year and who, who are past donors. But as far, as far as we know and from statements that have been made in Parliament um, about this, there's Lockheed Martin, as I said, we're not sure about the current status of that one. Boeing have given a, given a grant to the memorial. Northrop Grumman, um, in fact, anyone who comes through Canberra Airport, if there's a, um, if there's still the, which I believe there is still the large advertisement there for the, for the memorial, then down in the corner, you notice Northrop Grumman's name, so they're associated with advertising for the memorial. Um, and we believe Tala's a big French French company, several of them uh, at the moment. And as I mentioned, it, it does change from time to time. Does Tala's have their name within the memorial? Well, if you go into the entrance to the memorial, and I should say the entrance to, entrance to the memorial right now is quite different. It's very um, very temporary because of the huge redevelopment that's that's going on at the place so arrangements right at the moment might be different but the memorial that we that we knew had all the all the main donors sponsors listed in the foyer of the memorial including those weapons companies that are named so a number of them would have their name up on a big rotating display right behind the reception desk there were others on plaques on the left as you go in. But in addition to that, before Anzac Hall was knocked down, um, when you went into Anzac Hall, on the left was the name Boeing and on the name was the right Lockheed Martin. So it's clear clear advertising there and clear conflicts of interest for the memorial to be displaying the names of these companies. And it's very important to, as you point out, to reclaim the past because on Anzac Day and other days we hear about what happened in that war, the Great War, but most people don't realise because we're not told or haven't been told that Australia's been at war since 1788. That's absolutely true and that's one of the, in fact, probably the overwhelming omission in our war commemoration at the moment, both at the War Memorial and in the official Anzac Day commemorations, is that there is not commemoration of the frontier wars. Now, these are the wars that were fought right from the very first time of white settlement for over 100 years up until, well, early early last century, the wars between the white settlers and the indigenous First Nations people who were defending their land. Now, defending their land, one would have thought, according to all our official history, is a very honourable thing to do. And yet these First Nations people, tens of thousands of them, who died defending their land, either because they were fighters or because they were innocent peoples, innocent First Nations people who were caught up in one of the many massacres that took place. The fact that the Frontier Wars is not commemorate, are not commemorated officially by Australia is a huge omission and it's a very black mark on our war commemoration. That might change. Um, there are people urging for the Frontier Wars to be officially honoured and acknowledged and commemorated at the War Memorial. 
there are people, uh, people, um, in fact, some some very fine activists who ensure that the frontier wars are remembered at the official Anzac Day marches each year, although they're not part of the official ceremony, but um, full marks to them for making sure that there is some presence there. So that's the um, the biggest black mark on our commemoration at the moment that it doesn't uh, doesn't honour and respect the front, frontier wars. There are other other big problems which we've sort of alluded to. There's a problem with the weapons makers who've got a, a vested interest in warfare and make financial contributions to our commemoration of it. I mean, you you just can't reconcile those two things. There, they're not compatible. You can't do you can't do both well. Um, so we need to get the weapons company money out of our war commemoration. The other big, huge omission in our war commemoration is that there aren't any of the really, really important questions asked. I mean, we we talk with appropriate sorrow about the huge losses that Australia and other countries, far more so than Australia actually, but the huge losses suffered in warfare. But we don't ask the questions about, well, how could this have been prevented? What might have been done differently? What steps led to this war? Were there factors predisposing to the war? Who decided we would go to war? Was it just one person, the Prime Minister of Australia, as it most often is? Could the decision-making process have been better? Uh, looking uh, in particular at World War One, which of course is where Anzac Day started, looking particularly at World War One, we should be asking, well, what are the lessons that World War One could have taught us if we're interested? Uh, the lessons being, of course, that it's very easy to start a war. It's wretchedly, wretchedly difficult to end a war once it's started. Most of us are familiar with the fact that the people who uh, made the decisions for World War One in 1914, they thought it would be all be o- over within a few months. Well, um, four catastrophic years later, it was still grinding on. So that's the first first lesson, that wars are very easy to start. The second lesson is that building up weapons does not deter wars. I mean, we can look at the arms races, especially in the naval sphere, that are that occurred before World War One, and all the, the dreadnoughts and other weaponry that were built up, and they were built up specifically with the, in the vain expectation, or at least this is what people people were told, that they would keep the peace, keep us safe, deter wars, deter aggression, all that sort of thing. I mean, it was all, all a lie. Uh, we only need to look at where it ended. It didn't deter anything. It helped to bring on, well, to either to bring on a war or to make that war far more catastrophic than it would otherwise have been. So we, um, that's a lesson that we need in big measure right now because we're being told the same lie that we need to get more and more weapons to deter wars and keep the peace. I mean, the, the notion is ridiculous. It's unconscionable that our leaders still trot this line out. Um, and we need to be we need to be rejecting that and fighting fighting back against it. And also important, as you point out, is reclaiming the truth about the Australian soldiers or service people who go overseas. And as we all know, we don't have wars on Australian shores. It, it's always our 
armed services going over to seize despite someone else's war. And, and in recent times, the truth has been coming out about the fact that it's not all squeaky clean once they go overseas. Yes, and that also is an important element. I don't think there's any reason why we should expect Australian or any other troops to to behave in a squeaky clean fashion. By that I mean, I don't want that to be misinterpreted, but by that I mean that once war has started, the circumstances are horrific. Um, there's a lot of fear. People do terrible things when they're un- under fear. Um, and while we would we would hope and we like to expect that our own troops um, would always act uh, in accordance with international law, the laws of war, then what we've seen is that that's not necessarily the case. So I think the lesson to draw is not that not that Australians, Australian soldiers are better or more morally upright than other soldiers, although that that may that may well be so in some cases, but that's not the important lesson. The important lesson is that war itself creates the conditions under which terrible human rights violations occur. It's the very nature of warfare that atrocities occur, and there hasn't been any war when that has not been the case. I think one of relating to your question. If we look at the situation in Ukraine now, atrocities are occurring. We know that and there needs to be accountability for them and there needs to, we we need to know exactly what has happened. And I think that's important because the automatic knee-jerk reaction now when there's an atrocity in the Ukraine war is that everybody knows who did it. Well, There is such a thing as false flag operations and I'm not alleging that any have occurred but atrocities need to be investigated and yes, war crimes trials should be held but um, they need to be done in a fashion that allows all the truth to come out. That's important in, in any war. And also what's changed over wars in recent times or maybe not quite so recent times is that Civilians are the ones who mainly pay the price. Yes, that's certainly the case in in modern wars, and it has been so for quite some quite quite some time. The percentage of civilians to military who are killed, injured, traumatised in in warfare is is fairly high, and it it varies from situation to situation. But generally, that's true true of all modern wars really makes a mockery of the notion that wars protect innocent innocent people because it's primarily innocent people who are killed and injured in, in warfare. So not just killed and injured, but displaced in, in the millions and um, traumatised in, in ways that go on for generations. And we know that long-lived effect from the families in Australia and right around the world that are still suffering the effects from from the world wars of, of last century. Yes, the civilian impacts are the primary primary impacts that we see in warfare and also from attacks on civilian infrastructure, uh, which particularly 
affect children, with attacks on healthcare, healthcare that children need, and in fact a lot of the deaths in children in times of war are not simply from direct attack, but they're from missing out on the healthcare that they would normally receive for life-threatening illnesses. Attacks on healthcare, which are unconscionable, um, and they're a, a war crime in themselves. Attacks on education facilities, so that children can't continue going to school. Just attacks on the stability that children need in their lives, and the the trauma and the distress that they have not only in their own lives, but that they witness in those they rely on, their parents and other caregivers. One of the reasons that our only option in modern times is to avoid wars. That takes hard work and it takes a focus on the prevention of war that Australia, for one, is not doing at the moment. Our leaders... Um, in particular, Mr Dutton, Defence Minister, talks frequently in relation to our relationship with China, saying that um, Australia wants peace and we'll do, we'll do all that we can to preserve peace. And then he goes on to announce a new weapons acquisition. It's a lie. Australia is not doing all we can to preserve peace. Peace research in this country has dwindled to virtually nothing. It's never been hugely strong, but there used to be some really fantastic peace research going on. There is a little now, but only a fraction of what it used to be. And it's a bit like, say, trying to treat or trying to get rid of cancer. You know, if there's a particular cancer that we want to wipe out or reduce in the population, we don't just wring our hands and say how much we'd like to get rid of cancer. We actually research it. We put funds and lots of lots of our best minds into working out what causes this particular type of cancer, how can we tackle it, how can we prevent it and that's what we need to do in relation to warfare. We need to look at all the factors that make wars more likely and that make them more deadly when they do occur and we need to address those factors and that's where Australia, more so than some other countries, is falling down at the moment. Finally, Sue, do you feel like a lot of people do that there's too much emphasis now put on Anzac Day? There's too much emphasis put on a particular version of commemorating Anzac Day and it's a very jingoistic, my nation, right or wrong version of commemoration And if we had a a meaningful and helpful version of Anzac Day, it would be far more reflective. It would be commemorating our losses. It would be acknowledging that there is no glory in warfare. And it would be looking at, not just on Anzac Day, but right through the year, um, it would be looking at how could these terrible losses have been prevented and what could Australia have done differently to protect not only Australians but other nations from going to wars that should never have been fought. Thank you once again, Sue. Thanks very much, Jan. Appreciate that. Dr Sue Ware, the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, the voice of the community. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976. The first round of the French presidential elections has come and gone and President Emmanuel Macron topped the poll with 
far right contestant Irene Le Pen, second, and socialist candidate Jean-Claude Mélenchon, the third. The second round between the first two is scheduled for next weekend. I'm speaking with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan, who has a particular interest in the Pacific nations. Nick, you believe the election between Macron and Le Pen has significant implications for the Pacific dependencies, the overseas colonies of France. What did the two leaders say in the past or in their election campaigning about the Pacific dependencies? A number of leading candidates for the French presidency, including uh, current French President Emmanuel Macron and the main contender Marine Le Pen of the uh, Rassemblement National, the former National Front, both uh, launched uh, formal statements about um, their policy towards the overseas territories, as they call them, Lutromer, and specifically about New Caledonia, which is a very uh, key issue after the uh, referendums we've talked about many times on this program. It was quite striking to see the difference between the statements. You know, Marine Le Pen, who is, people will know, is from the extreme right uh, Rassemblement National, you know, it's a racist, uh, anti-immigrant party. But uh, in recent months, she's been very much playing to popular concerns about um, economic issues, the cost of living, problems around the health services and, uh, and others in France. She's taken a position in support of uh, pensioners at a time that the uh, Macron administration has been seeking major pension reforms, uh, quite adverse for um, older people and uh, indeed uh, an increase in the age to when you can access your pension. So rather than talk about political status issues, say for New Caledonia or uh, the legacies of nuclear testing in French Polynesia, she's very much been running a hip pocket campaign. What is the cost of living doing to your uh, well-being? Macron, in contrast, really presents himself almost like uh, a king sometimes in his things. He speaks in generalities. He's very much talking about France as a, a modern, growing economic power, political power. He talks a lot about uh, uh, France as a scientific powerhouse. Um, he announced last October 30 billion euros worth of funding for research around manufacturing and building up manufacturing capacity at a time that many countries are trying to decouple from China and uh, Russia. He's uh, talked a lot about uh, research for the oceans, which is a particular important importance for the um, uh, the Pacific Islands, but also opens the way for deep sea mining. A great concern for many uh, Pacific leaders. Um, so you can see a contrasting rhetoric between the leaders. The bottom line, however, is that all of them see France as an ongoing colonial power in the Pacific Islands, and um, that's of of uh, obvious concern to people in uh, French Polynesia, the Maui people, the Kanak people of New Caledonia and so on. Well, looking at the elections, it's not compulsory voting in the Pacific or it's not compulsory voting anywhere. Who voted and who didn't? French elections are determined in, in France, in Europe, just because of the preponderance of voters. Uh, the numbers of people living in the 11 French overseas collectivities, as they call them, is pretty small. What was really interesting was the very low turnout 
in the Pacific Islands. In um, French Polynesia, two out of three people just didn't bother to go and vote. Similarly, the turnout in New Caledonia, only a third of voters registered went out to, to vote. Some of this was um, tiredness because of uh, COVID, because of um, in New Caledonia having had a series of elections and referendums in recent years. A lot of it is from people saying, you know, what's Europe got to do with us? We live in the Pacific. Um, we have our own local governments, though not fully in control. France is, is another world, and many ordinary people I talk to around the Pacific feel that the European, North American colonial powers have got nothing to do with them because they're Pacific Islanders. But a more substantial reason was that the pro-independence parties across particularly New Caledonia and French Polynesia called for boycotts, called for people to abstain. And so Union Caledonienne, the largest party in um, New Caledonia, said, just don't go and vote, it's got nothing to do with us. So um, there was very low turnout in Kanak majority areas. The indigenous Kanak people in the East Coast, in the Loyalty Islands, just didn't turn out to vote. Similarly, in French Polynesia, Tahiti, um, independence leader Oscar Temeru, who leads the largest pro-independence party, Tabini Huiratira, uh, he said, don't vote. And many people didn't. And, you know, it's, there's, so there's a range of reasons why people didn't bother to vote, that they just went to church or went fishing. But um, it's pretty clear, Wallace and Futuna, where there's really not a strong independence movement, 56% of people turned out to vote. But in, the, um, in the, the two countries where there are strong independence movements, only a third of people in New Caledonia voted, less than 30% in um, French Polynesia. So this political decision to boycott the choice of candidates was pretty strong. Some people in the Pacific advocated a vote for Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who is the uh, left-wing candidate from uh, a group known as uh, La France Insoumise, uh, France Unbowed. Uh, Mélenchon did pretty well, um, came in third in the overall polling out of 12 candidates in France. A very strong grassroots campaign by Mélenchon in France with a lot of door-knocking, a lot of outreach, um, work with uh, migrant communities, with working class and trade union uh, networks, uh, with people involved in social struggles around housing and things like that. And uh, although he didn't get into the final runoff, the top two candidates go into a runoff on the 24th of April, Mélenchon's campaign, I think, will continue um, through uh, social networks. And it was striking that uh, Mélenchon topped the poll in six out of the 11 French overseas dependencies, particularly in the Caribbean, in three Caribbean countries, he got more than 50% of the vote. And in the national tally, he only got, I think, 21%. I haven't got the figures in front of me. But um, certainly, uh, he was um, gained a strong vote in the Atlantic and the, the Caribbean in the French overseas dependencies. Macron, however, did much better in the Pacific amongst those who actually voted. Is he likely to direct his supporters to Macron next week? Yeah, Mélenchon has called for people to uh, form a barrier, as they say, for, um, against uh, Le Pen. Um, you know, and this has been a terrible dilemma for the left in France, which overall has done pretty badly up until now. The French Socialist Party has been uh, um, devastated. They were in, in power under François Hollande, uh, the French president uh, elected in 2002, 
but you know they've lost enormous support, and indeed Macron's um, new party, La République en Marche, uh, the Republic on the Move, has basically smashed the Socialist Party. Their candidate Anne Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris, got about 1.8 percent of the vote. Um, the official figures haven't been released, but it's really low, less than two percent. And so, you know, Mélenchon has been the standard bearer for the left. But um, there's a debate within the broad left. Should you vote for Macron to stop Le Pen, um, which would be a disaster not only for France but for the world to have this extreme right uh, leader take power in in uh, you know one of the largest European nations. But then a lot of people on the left really can't bear Macron. He presented himself in 2017 as a centrist, as a man neither of the left or the right. But that's nonsense. He's an anarch. He attended the ENA, the National School for Administration, which is the grooming ground for senior bureaucrats and power brokers in France. Um, he was a banker with Rothschild's bank. Um, he moved into uh, the Socialist Party government under Francois Hollande as a finance minister and was a notorious right-winger in terms of bringing in austerity policies uh, in the battle between the, the left and the right, of, as they were in the Socialist Party in those days. Under his own administration, since his election in 2017, Macron has been um, really bringing in a whole range of neoliberal austerity policies, um, attacks on trade unions, trying to break the power, for example, of the railways unions. Um, his current uh, push for pensions reform has been uh, uh, a real battleground in recent months. It's been stalled up until now, but uh, if Macron wins, as seems likely, this will uh, you know, be the, the, the first front of a assault on working people under his next government. More than that, Macron has really unleashed uh, the police against uh, a whole range of social movements. Um, in 2019-2020, famously the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Vest movement, which was people from the periphery rather than the centre of France campaigning, uh, were, you know, had the police force unleashed on them and incredible violence in the streets. That's been used against trade unions uh, and others. One of the reasons why uh, people in, in New Caledonia don't have much time for, for Macron is that in the lead-up to last year's referendum on self-determination, France deployed 2,500 police and military forces, 30 armoured cars and so on, to um, New Caledonia in the lead-up to the referendum, supposedly to create secure, you know, environment for the referendum. So it's a it's a difficult choice for many people on the left to hold back um, the surging vote for Marine Le Pen, who has increased her standing in the polls compared to the 2017 election, versus Macron, who certainly is no um, no centrist. Well, as you said, he went to the Pacific in the 2017. I can't imagine Le Pen going to the Pacific, or is that a bit harsh? Well, no, the, the right see, you know, this is one of the other dilemmas for people in the Pacific, and this is why the independence parties have been so critical of both leading candidates who will be contesting each other in the second round, and indeed Oscar Temeru, the pro-independence leader in uh, Tahiti, in French Polynesia, leader of Tabini Huidaraktira, just yesterday, said that people in Tahiti should abstain from voting in the second round. He thinks that there's not much difference between Macron and Le Pen. I think there is, actually. I think Le Pen's uh, really dangerous. But um, 
for people in the, the independence movements, they see that um, major candidates for the French elections all support an ongoing strategic role for France in the, the region that's been dubbed the Indo-Pacific and, uh, you know, maintaining colonial control in New Caledonia, in Wallace and Futuna, in French Polynesia is a central part of France's standing as a mid-sized global power that's got a seat on the UN Security Council that's a nuclear weapons power and that sees itself as a force balancing against um, both the United States alliance under AUKUS and China in this region. So uh, there are many Pacific voices who, who are opposed to that. What's striking, however, is that conservative anti-independence leaders in the Pacific have been backing Macron. Uh, and this is, I suppose, a big shift from last time in 2017. You know, in, in 2017, Macron didn't get one endorsement from uh, a mayor or an elected politician in French Polynesia. The uh, French system is to run for president, you have to have 500 formal endorsements, they call them parrainage. So you, a mayor, an elected official, senior politicians and members of the National Assembly can formally endorse a candidate and you have to get 500 signatures in order to run. Uh, in the past, Macron got very few votes of support from politicians in the Pacific. This time, in sharp contrast, the uh, conservative government of President Edouard Fritsch, the Tapura Huiratira Party in uh, French Polynesia, um, told all their politicians to, to vote for Macron, to endorse him, and he got 91 endorsements from French Polynesia. Similarly, in New Caledonia, the conservative anti-independence parties, these are parties of the right, and proudly so, pretty much all of them endorsed Macron. And only one politician in New Caledonia endorsed Le Pen. And last time, in 2017, 47% of French voters in New Caledonia voted for Le Pen against Macron. The national score was 66-34, so Macron basically got two-thirds of the vote, Le Pen one-third in the French election, speaking roughly. But in New Caledonia, it was pretty much 50-50. Um, that's shifting, and I think we'll see, because Macron and Le Pen will be campaigning over the next 10 days. But um, I think we're going to see uh, Macron do better in the Pacific simply because the conservative French electorate that want France to stay in the region see him as their best bet. And indeed are worried, I think, that, that uh, from my reading of it, that Le Pen will um, you know, alienate so many people in the Pacific because of her racist nationalist policies that um, people will turn away to China or to other supporters. Um, and there's a bit of a policy dilemma for the Australian government that will be elected on the 21st of May. Well, we are going to talk about Solomon Islands and China in a, a few moments, but as you said then, the eye on China, whoever wins in France. Look, it's a, a significant issue simply because of the changing geopolitical context. You know, one of the great concerns of people in Canberra, I think, at the moment, is that both the United States, France, and other European Union powers are going to be putting a lot more energy in the next 6 to 12 months into Europe. Um, obviously, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the ongoing aggression and human rights uh, violations, the use of rape in war the debate about whether NATO countries that are currently not members of NATO should join it, whether Ukraine should join the European Union. 
you know, the Biden administration, the French government and other key EU members are going to be very much focused on Europe. And, um, you know, I think the Chinese are sitting pretty in the current situation at a geopolitical level as they watch uh, what's going on in Europe, the increased focus on, on Russia, and um, people in the U.S. administration that wanted to have a lot more focus on the strategic competition with China in the Indo-Pacific region, in the Asia-Pacific region, are worried that attention will be drawn away. You've got, of course, U.S. midterm elections in November, and then the run-up for the next two years towards um, the U.S. presidential elections in 2024. Um, how much bandwidth has the Biden administration got to do both Europe and the Asia-Pacific region? Time will tell, but um, I think people in Canberra are worried, and certainly, uh, you know, French politicians are, are going to be much more focused on uh, Europe as much as, as as on China. The final round is on April the 24th. I know you don't like crystal balls, Nick, but is there any predictions? Look, um, the current polling suggests that Macron has his nose in front. One of the striking things was that in the in the campaign leading up to the first round, Macron stood uh, apart. I mean, he was busy, you know, going off and meeting Putin in, in Moscow, and uh, there was a lot happening in Europe in the midst of the election campaign. But also he has this sort of magisterial, uh, statesmanlike pose um, that he's above the, the petty fray of uh, parliamentary politics. And, uh, you know, there's a real arrogance in Macron's style. And he didn't hold very many campaign meetings. Indeed, it was only right at the end that he held a big public rally. He refused to participate in a number of uh, candidate meetings, in uh, sorry, candidate debates in the lead-up to the first round of polling. Um, and I think, um, you know, as we speak, uh, we're going to see over the next uh, uh, period leading up to the 24th a much more active campaign by Macron, recognising that um, Le Pen has consciously tried to tone down the racist and anti-immigrant policies that have um, won, you know, significant support in France from uh, right-wing voters. She was aided by the... Uh, the role of uh, a neo-fascist named Eric Zemmour, who also ran for the presidency, uh, didn't do as well as Le Pen, but certainly said a number of, you know, really outrageously racist and uh, evil sort of things, uh, quite anti-Semitic policies, uh, tending to um, uh, try and whitewash the history of the Patin regime and the collaborationist regime during the Second World War, and so on. By uh, by contrast, Le Pen mounted her campaign, as I said, around people's daily lives, around cost of living, around petrol prices, around uh, the rising price of food in Europe, you know, the cost of energy for the coming uh, uh, period in Europe, uh, particularly because of Russia's uh, oil and gas exports to the European Union and so on. So she's very much focusing on ordinary people's concerns and also opposing privatisation of public utilities and things, quite a complex policy. Very few people on the left have illusions about um, Le Pen, what a Le Pen government would mean, but she is advancing policies that strike a chord against Macron, who, as I say, has been very actively in promoting quite a number of neoliberal austerity anti-working class policies over the last five years. And so, um, you know, it'll be tight and we'll have to see how it, how it plays out. Well, next, Nick, to the Solomon Islands and the announcement by the government there that they were 
moving to establish a broad security agreement with China to expand the country's security arrangements with more countries. Morrison and co nearly choked on their Wheaties. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, there's a, a whole lot of hypocrisies about, you know, this whole debate in the Australian media focused on whether China will establish a military base. People I've been interviewing in the Pacific highlight different priorities and perspectives, which we can talk about. But firstly, they, they point out, you know, you're worried about Chinese influence, and yet the port of Darwin, the port of Newcastle, which is the greatest joke, I suppose one of the three bases potentially for our new nuclear submarines, if ever they arrive, both of which are controlled in part by companies, um, state-owned enterprises or private Chinese corporations. The port of Newcastle has significant investment from China Merchants Proprietary Limited. The Landridge Group that has an interest in Darwin is uh, significant Chinese funding. So people in the Pacific say, hang on, you guys have China as your greatest trading partner, have Chinese investment in key infrastructure. Why are you allowed to do it and not us? There's also a lot of anger about talk of Chinese military bases because there are none currently in the Pacific and there are an awful lot of French, US and indeed Australian military programs, bases, facilities across the region. And indeed Australia is, you know, particularly over the last few years, has been ramping up its work in partnership with France or with the AUKUS allies to expand military facilities around the region. So you have um, uh, the involvement of Australia and the United States in upgrading the Lombrum naval base on Manus in Papua New Guinea. Australia is currently building two facilities in the Solomon Islands to expand uh, wharf facilities for the uh, Solomon's uh, uh, patrol boats, Australian-supplied naval patrol boats, which are used for maritime surveillance. Similarly, in Vanuatu, the Australian Defence Force has been upgrading the uh, uh, military barracks and facilities for the um, Vanuatu Mobile Force, which is Vanuatu's paramilitary police force. You can go on and on. There are examples all around the world. Zed Seselger, our, our Pacific Minister, just went to formally open the Black Rock Camp, which is a new uh, military base uh, um, for the Royal Fiji Military Forces, uh, sorry, Republic of Fiji Military Forces, particularly for their peacekeeping and humanitarian operations. So Australia is deeply engaged with military forces around the region and in recent years has been pushing for countries to develop national security statements. And so for Vanuatu, for Solomon Islands and others, our Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and our Defence Force have been actively engaged in developing national security statements, national security frameworks and legislation in a number of our Pacific partners. So when China comes to do the same thing, many Pacific governments say, well, we will deal with China as we deal with Australia or with the United States. We welcome their support. There's, you know, the Americans announced uh, a few months ago that they were going to open a reopen the embassy, uh, the U.S. embassy in Honiara in Solomon Islands, that they closed in 1993. And the Sogavari government said, well, we very much welcome the Americans to come back and engage with us on key security issues like climate change. But they see China as a legitimate partner. Now, there's mixed attitudes amongst ordinary people across the Pacific. 
These are very conservative Christian societies and many people are hostile to what they perceive as communism in China. (laughs) Certainly hostility to the Communist Party of China. But at the same time, Pacific governments and many people in the Pacific are willing to engage with a range of partners. And what we've seen over the last 10 or 20 years, and we've talked about it on this program many times, is that countries are pragmatically going to engage with Korea, Taiwan, Indonesia, China, the United Arab Emirates, Cuba for medical training and so on, and China under the the rubric friends to all, enemies to none. That's part of the, the picture. What concerns many key Solomon Islanders, however, is the the detail of the security agreement around things like policing and the proposal that China will increase deployments of police both to protect Chinese um, state-owned enterprises operating in the Solomons or for training of the Royal Solomon Islands Police Force. And uh, one leading uh, Solomon Islands intellectual, Tarsisius Tara Kapitalaka, said quite pointedly, you know, looking at the record of Chinese police operations in um, Hong Kong, in uh, Tibet, in Shenzhen, we don't want them training our police in using that techniques. So I think the focus of many... Solomon Islanders has been on the transparency around the decision, whether there's an informed decision being made by people in the Solomon Islands around this thing and around the priority given to policing as opposed to other types of security building. But key leaders in the Solomons have said, look, we don't think there's going to be a military base. And the furor that's been in the Australian media is missing the point. Finally, Nick, what it shows, though, is that the Pacific is becoming a focus. Very much so. Very much so. And this is one of the, the things that successive leaders of the Pacific Islands Forum have said. Dame Meg Taylor, who finished her term last year as Secretary General of the Forum. The new Forum leader, Henry Puna. I interviewed um, Mr. Puna, the current Secretary General of the Forum, when I was in Fiji in March this year. And he said that there's, you know, there's a real attempt to divide and conquer the unity of the Pacific He argues, and Dame Meg Taylor did previously, that a collective voice from Pacific countries is all the more important facing up to global challenges like climate change, especially the greatest security threat to the peoples of the Pacific around uh, maritime ocean resources, including things like deep sea mining. So you see attempts by uh, Pacific countries being played off against each other on these questions. Just um, last week, uh, uh, a new alliance called the Pacific Parliamentarians Alliance on Deep Sea Mining was launched. This is a a range of politicians from across the region wanting a moratorium on um, uh, programs uh, to uh, expand deep sea mining because of potential environmental impacts. And yet a number of Pacific countries, uh, Nauru, Cook Islands, uh, Tonga, uh, Kiribati, are engaged with transnational corporations and programs funded by France, by the United States and others for deep sea. So one of the great concerns of um, core Pacific leaders is, you know, that major powers in this crowded, uh, competitive state uh, are going to try and play Pacific Island nations off against each other and break the regional unity that you've seen on issues like uh, climate change and so on. Okay, Nick, well, I'll talk to you again after the election. 24th of April um, will be uh, um, the the feature. 
can I put in a plug on the 21st of April, just before the uh, elections, I'll be speaking at a seminar in Melbourne uh, for the Australian Institute for International Affairs. Um, you can turn up uh, to their office or uh, uh, come online Zoom, and I'll be talking about France's uh, role in the Blue Pacific and um, uh, what it means for uh, the Kanak people of New Caledonia, the Maui people of French Polynesia, Wallisians, Fatunans, um, at a time uh, that um, the, the contest between Macron and Le Pen has big implications for the uh, French dependencies in our region. Thank you, Nick. Thanks very much, Dan, as always. And we'll be hearing more from Nick as the results come through of the second round. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. And continuing with the recent history of Colombia in South America, we pick up with the coming to power of Alvaro Uribe. And, you know, this is exemplified in the fact that in 2006, he signs the first iteration of what is Plan Colombia with the United States. So Plan Colombia is essentially a massive expansion of U.S. military aid to Colombia. It involves an expansion in the presence of U.S. troops in the country, so actually having U.S. soldiers in Colombia's national territory, and they're exempt from Colombian law to this day. So if they kill someone or if they, for example, rape a woman, which has happened in Colombia and has happened in other places where the US where US soldiers are present, they are not liable to be punished under Colombian law. They they, they are essentially immune from prosecution, which is a, a you know a pretty embarrassing violation of Colombia's sovereignty by the elite of the country. And Plan Colombia also includes billions of dollars worth of military aid ostensibly to fight the drug trade, which is steadily growing throughout this entire period. Now, of course, there's a very bitter irony here in that the U.S. is giving, supposedly giving money to Colombia's government to finance anti-drug operations, when, of course, we now know that the U.S. essentially created the drug problem in Colombia. And not only that, but we now also know that Alvaro Uribe himself financed his electoral campaigns with drug money. So the very man that, you know, that the U.S. is saying they're going to help, you know, fight drugs with. He's a drug dealer himself or has benefited very directly from drug crime. Um, and, of course, this, you know, this sort of pattern is prevalent across Colombia. So particularly in uh, the right-wing parties, like the Conservative Party, uh, it is very common and there's a very deep penetration of Colombian politics by organised crime. And in fact, the trial against Alvaro Uribe is still pending. So he's actually still being investigated for accepting this money from um, drug traffickers and for actually helping to rig the 2018 election using drug money. That's another um, accusation levelled against him. And there's enough preliminary evidence for there to be an investigation of that, of that accusation, of that um, hypothesis that, he, that he's actually used illicit funds to corrupt Colombia's quote-unquote, democracy. Over those decades leading up to what you've just been saying, how are the Indigenous people getting on? Yeah, now this is, um, this is, this is an issue that has uh, received a little bit of coverage in, even in our Western media. But look, the Indigenous Colombians have always been, like, like in every colonised society, are extremely marginalised to this day 
They regularly report the highest rates of illiteracy, um, of healthcare issues, low life expectancy. In Colombia, Indigenous life expectancy is estimated to be seven to nine years less than non-Indigenous Colombian or particularly white Colombians, which is a, an obscene difference um, for life expectancy, considering you know, considering the fact that obviously everyone has a right to, to, to adequate health care and adequate treatment. But of course, in a lot of these Indigenous communities, which are overwhelmingly rural, you know, there's a total lack of development. Um, in fact, the only quote-unquote development that takes place a lot of the time in rural parts of Colombia is development related to the exploitation of gold mines um, or other open pit mines that are, you know, brazenly opened on Indigenous territory without Indigenous consent. And of course, none of the money or the profits from that goes to Indigenous communities, or at least in the vast majority of cases, it doesn't. And, you know, there's been a number of different cases throughout throughout the past few decades of Indigenous communities, you know, trying to fight against gold mining groups, trying to take them to the Colombian courts, and then if not the Colombian courts, to international courts. And, you know, they do sometimes receive recognition from, you know, these so-called human rights organisations that like to have their sort of showpieces every now and then. Um, but no one ever does anything for them. I mean, at the end of the day, the open pit mines remain open. Their land remains exploited. They remain driven off their land and displaced. Um, in fact, there was a very recent example of, of this uh, last year, actually, um, and in 2021, so it was over a two-year period, where a large gold mine in uh, the Colombian Amazon was being essentially challenged by Indigenous communities. Uh, in fact, it was very close to the border with Brazil. And, you know, a number of journalists, you know, liberal journalists, um, were talking about how spirited their fight was. And, but, you know, again, no one did anything to help these people. Um, and in the end, the mine, the owners of the mine, which was a Canadian company, actually, won out. And the mine remains open and these people are, are suffering. You know, their land's being destroyed. And, you know, there's there's going to be questions raised, uh, I would wager, about the pollution of waterways because this is also one of the main things with open pit mines is that, you know, the, the surrounding area, particularly if it's close to water, which the Amazon obviously is, you know, it can have devastating impacts on, on, the, impact, on, on the quality of water, um, not only for the people, indigenous communities, but for, but for the rest of the environment. So unfortunately, it's been a it's been a very very um, difficult few de well no not even few decades few centuries for Colombia's indigenous people, and you know there there has been um, sort of tokenistic um, changes to Colombia's uh, electoral system. There is an indigenous parliament that's very very small, um, so indigenous people essentially elect certain candidates within their communities, but it's it is a minuscule proportion of Colombia's legislature. And they don't actually get to vote on all policy anyway. It's considered to be something reserved for certain issues that are deemed by the Colombian state to be important to Indigenous people. So, you know, there's no there's no real empowerment for Indigenous communities yet in Colombia. How long did Uribe stay in power? Uribe did not actually stay in power for that, he didn't stay in official power as president for that long. He only completed about, he only did about two terms, if my memory serves me correctly. But his economic doctrine and his influence in Colombian politics has extended right up until today. In fact, Ivan Duque, who is the current outgoing president, is his protege. Um, so he, he is essentially a replica 
of Alvaro Uribe. Now, Duque has, is also very well known in Colombia and around the world for, for his neoliberalism, for his conservative attitude on social issues, um, and his hostility to left-wing and progressive and radical groups in Colombia. Um, and he also, of course, adopted the very sort of aggressive and hostile uh, stance toward Venezuela. Um, that, that was really... It, I mean, it was also done under Uribe when, uh, when Hugo Chavez was in power in Venezuela at the same time. Um, but Duque really sort of intensified it uh, and, and, you know, of course, has begun actually financing paramilitary groups that actually have now gone into Venezuela's territory. And the Venezuelan armed forces are actually having to repel Colombian right-wing paramilitary groups. But Duque, look, Duque was more of the same. He continued to promote the neoliberal program that Uribe began, or that even Uribe's predecessors began in the 1990s. And he's ploughed ahead with austerity measures. Um, and this was, of course, a catalyst for the 2020-2021 Colombian protests. Because, of course, Duque, even in spite of all of the economic and social chaos and the, and the staggeringly high number of deaths that the COVID pandemic caused in Colombia, to date, the estimate is 140,000 people died in Colombia, which is terrible, which is a tragedy. He continued to pursue an extreme neoliberal economic uh, trajectory. In fact, you know, one of the, the main catalysts for the 2021 Colombian protests was that he was going to uh, reform public health laws and labour laws and wage laws that were essentially going to gut the public health care system. And, of course, education was the other massive thing. He was going to basically eliminate what little subsidy there was for public education, particularly scholarships for poorer students. And he was going to essentially freeze wages in the public sector and he, he refused to, to engage in even moderate sort of social welfare policies throughout the pandemic. And this led to a social explosion. Of course, Colombia has been heading this way for, for many, many years, that this was the catalyst because, of course, people now are dying. It's, it's literally a matter of life and death for people that maybe it necessarily wasn't. There were even small business owners, middle class people, um, not just poor and rural groups, or not just Indigenous and Afro-Colombians, who are the who are the main, you know, sort of mobilisers of social justice in Colombia, um, but it really was a wide cross section of society, and their resistance to the Colombian elite has been reinforced by the reaction of Duque's government um, during those protests last year, which was to apply extreme violence against the protesters. Um, we now know that there were torture facilities set up. For example, in Bogotá, the capital's main police station, dozens of people have been confirmed to have been killed by security forces and right-wing vigilante groups. There was a case in Cali, which is on the, Columbia, uh, on the Pacific coast of Colombia, where wealthy uh, residents essentially joined up with right-wing paramilitary groups and were going out, beating up and even killing, in some cases, some of the protesters, taking it into their own hands to support the Duque government. So, you know, Colombia became, uh, has become a really, really, really polarised society. And I'll just take us back because the other thing, of, of course, I need to mention is the abject failure of the peace accords. Now, of course, they were signed by Santos, who again was another neoliberal Colombian president before Duque. And he, of course, signed the peace accords with the FARC in, in Havana. Uh, at the behest of the Cubans who wanted to make sure that the negotiations went as smoothly as possible. 
and Chiba was chosen because of its connection to the FARC and, and of course, its recognition as, you know, irrespective of what one thinks of the Cuban uh, government and the Cuban Communist Party's ideology, it is a, a respected country in terms of diplomacy in the region. But, you know, the Duque government, after the peace accords were signed, totally reneged on all of the government's commitments. They continued to kill social leaders. They continued to attack guerrillas, even after the FARC had disbanded and ceased to exist as a paramilitary or revolutionary um, guerrilla organisation. So they were still killing people, even though they had handed in their weapons. And this is, of course, why the ELN uh, refused to adhere to the peace agreements and continues fighting to this day. Um, and of course, Colombians were sick and, uh, sick and tired of the violence. That's part of the reason why the FARC decided to disband, because they are tired of decades and decades and decades of war. In fact, it's almost been going on as long as the Cuban blockade. That's almost six decades of war um, in Colombia. So it's not hard to see why Duque has become this immensely, immensely unpopular figure. In fact, 75% of Colombians have a negative or extremely negative view of Duque and his government. And this, of course, has had a really, really interesting impact on the, um, I guess, to the Colombian elections this year. Just to go back to those peace accords and the disarming of the FARC, yet since then, a great number of those ex-guerrillas have been murdered and their families murdered as well. Yes, um, yes, so exactly right. In fact, if we look, there's this is, again, this is the difficult thing with Colombia because of the nature of the conflict and because it's really an ongoing conflict. We just don't know how many people have been killed. I mean, there's so many remote areas of the country where deaths and killings aren't even reported. But, you know, it's well into the hundreds. I wouldn't even surprise me if it's breached a thousand since the peace accords were signed. But I, I don't have any concrete data for that. So that's just that's just a prediction on my part. But you're absolutely right. And, you know, this is this is what I was saying is that the FARC decided to disband, and they, they actually have now converted themselves into a political party called Comunes, or the Commons Party, which has the same, you know, the same social and economic objectives as the FARC, uh, which is to transform Colombian society into something more socialist-oriented. But, you know, they, they are continuing to commit themselves to the peace agreement, because, you know, in spite of what everyone says about the FARC, and in spite of the fact that they've been demonised for six decades, quite wrongly in, in many cases, I would say, you know, they clearly do have principles. They, they do want the peace accords to work out. You know, they, they're not going back into fighting. Maybe some individual, uh, individuals are, but the leadership itself is doing its best in spite of these provocations and this violence and the murder of some of their, um, you know, really high-ranking members, even people who were involved in the negotiation process, they are trying to give the peace accords a chance. And, you know, it, it's, it's a noble thing, but it's uh, unfortunately, you know, they're, they're dealing with the Colombian government, which is totally unscrupulous. And, of course, their US backers, which are equally, you know, which are equally as amoral. They, they have no qualm with killing these people, in spite of the fact that the negotiations were supposedly done in good faith. Um, so it's, it's an absolute tragedy. And now, unfortunately... You know, there, there is very little holding the Colombian government accountable at the moment. Now, the elections might change that 
Um, but the very least, when you had the FARC around, the Colombian government was being kept on its toes, and it actually had to, um, you know, it had to watch itself, and it had to sort of watch the way it presented itself. Because, you know, now that the fight doesn't exist, most of the international media has also forgotten about this conflict. Most of the international media has forgotten about the fact that people are still being murdered. And again, you know, if we want to expand that to social, social leaders and activists from, from all of these diverse and radical communities, hundreds are killed each year. Hundreds and hundreds are killed each year. This year alone, there have been over 300 murders of social activists in Colombia. And we're only in the fourth month, at the start of the fourth month of the year. That's just absolutely, absolutely obscene. And you only have, you know, occasional news reports commenting on this. You know, uh, certain Latin American um, articles, for example, you know, uh, sorry, news sites like Telesur, which is a Cuban and Venezuelan Nicaraguan joint project. You know, they comment on it, but most people don't see that. So it's, it's a real tragedy. It's a real tragedy. What are we looking for in the coming elections? Yeah, now this, um, this is a really interesting moment in Colombia's history um, because, you know, really it's, it's the first time since, since 1949, since Gautan, that the Colombian left looks like it has a real chance of claiming state power, uh, or actually claiming state power this time and potentially keeping it. So what we have, as I said before, you know, we have this intense dissatisfaction with the Colombian elite and the political and economic status quo. So Uribe is, or his, him and his sort of backers, are supporting uh, a coalition called Team Colombia, which is essentially a coalition of conservative political groups, including the Conservative Party. But who we have in opposition is really, really interesting. So we have what is called the Pacto Histórico. It was technically founded in 2018, but it's sort of been revitalised in 2020. And that's essentially a massive coalition of left-wing groups and left-wing political parties, I should say, that are looking to take the Colombian presidency. Now, their lead, the, their presidential candidate is Gustavo Petro. He came from a poor rural family um, of workers and peasants. He was a guerrilla in the M19 movement, so he actually fought against the Colombian state. And his vice president is Francia Marquez, and she is an Afro-Colombian land rights activist. And she, she's a really interesting figure too. So she's from a, a rural community in Colombia as well, very poor community. And she was catapulted into the spotlight for her opposition to a number of different uh, cases of foreign corporations trying to essentially take her land and use it again for um, mining. So she actually received a little bit of notoriety in Colombia. And this is a pretty interesting pairing. So, look, it's, it's important not to get ahead of ourselves either. It's, it's exciting, nonetheless, because we have a number of really strong parties in there. For example, the, the Colombian Communist Party, the Comunes, which is the FARC party, and Francia Marquez's party, which is called the Alternative Democratic Poll. But they are operating on an admittedly a, a more moderate platform than I think some of their more radical supporters would have liked. Um, they're conscious not to alienate Colombia's middle class and small business class, which which are actually on their side at the moment because of what happened last year. So, you know, they, they do still want to redistribute land. They're, they're, they're promising a modest redistribution of wealth. They want to lessen Colombia's dependence on mining and fossil fuel extraction, all, all of which is, you know, really positive. 
but they're, they're stopping short of something more radical, uh, like, for example, let's say what happened in Venezuela. And in fact, Gustavo Petro, which I'm, I'm, I'm not too happy about, um, has been quite clear in emphasizing his difference from Venezuela and Cuba and Nicaragua. You know, which is an electoral strategy. Um, but, you know, this, this is something Petro has done, you know, he did in 2018 as well um, when he lost the election because he's keen to not be associated in the eyes of, of more moderate Colombians, uh, you know, with these uh, radical socialist countries. But look, it's, it's a necessary change and it's going to be a very welcome change and it's going to help a lot of Colombians regardless. You know, Petro and Francia Marquez are people with a lot of integrity and, they, you know, a lot of morals as well, you know, to be able to to stand up to the Colombian state. And, you know, we've already seen efforts to intimidate members of the party. For example, Francia Marquez herself has been threatened with death three times by a, a far-right paramilitary group called Aguilas Negras, the Black Eagles, which are um, directly financed by the Uribe family. So, you know, there's actually direct sort of, you know, conflicts being sort of uh, whipped up by the Colombian right wing. But look, they went and they had their uh, primary elections on March 13th, which is essentially an indication. It's it's almost like a litmus test for what the May election, which or May 29th election will bring. And it also gives, uh, basically sort of confirms what the Senate and parliamentary makeup is going to be. And and the um, the left wing coalition won. It was a very slim victory, in fact. It was just under 15% compared to the Conservatives' uh, 12 or 13%. But if we now go to the uh, the May 29th election, uh, the polls are indicating that Gustavo Petro will win about 36% of the votes and the Conservative Party at the most will win 24% of the vote. So that's a more than 10% difference. So, you know, it's it's unlikely that the Colombian right wing will be able to bridge that gap in the time that's remaining, and particularly considering that the um, Pacto Historico is quite a, you know, a clever game, let's call it that. They're playing a clever game. They're not alienating too many people. So, you know, I, I do anticipate if it was a free and fair election, the left will win in Colombia on May 29th. But, of course, we are already seeing the stirrings of a sort of right-wing reaction. Uribe himself went on television and said that he... Or he, he actually just accused, straight out accused uh, Gustavo Petro of being financed by the Venezuelan government. He said without any evidence that the Venezuelan government rigged the March 13th primary elections, um, which of course is absolutely ridiculous. In fact, if we actually look at this issue in reverse, 85% of polling stations faced irregularities and the Colombian Electoral Commission, which organises those, is controlled by the right wing at the moment. So really, it's actually the reverse. The right wing is doing everything it can to manipulate this election. But even in spite of that massive amount of, of, in, of interference, the left came through. So look, again, let's, let's go, as with many of you know, these, these elections in Latin America, what I do tend to say is let's go into it with cautious optimism. We do have to be aware of the number of constraints that... Just if, you know, even if Gustavo Petro wins the popular vote, that by no means signifies, you know, the end of the right-wing campaign to unseat him or stop him. But it's a really important uh, transformation in Colombia nonetheless. Just finally, Sasha, the trial of Uribe. 
yeah, the, the trial against Uribe is still ongoing. Uh, the investigation is still ongoing. And yeah, as I said a little earlier, the main sort of crux of this case is that Uribe is being investigated for his financial links to organised crime, specifically drug trafficking groups, um, and even more specifically, the Medellin cartel, which is very, very involved in Colombian politics. So he's accused of accepting money from the Medellin cartel to finance his own political activities and business interests. And I think more concerningly for the rest of Colombia, of using cartel money to essentially corrupt the last election, to, to make the last election fraudulent. So to buy votes, to use paramilitary groups to intimidate voters and to essentially ensure that the right wing won in the last election. And of course, Duque did win in the last election. Now, it was a slim victory, but nonetheless, it shows the, just, you know, the vast amount of unaccountable power that Uribe and the Colombian oligarchy have as a result of their alliance with organised crime in the country. Now, as I said, he's still being investigated. There's been no confirmation of any charges being laid against him. Uh, he, he obviously can't run because he's, he's under a criminal investigation. That's why he's not running for president. But, you know, that doesn't matter. He still has access to all of his assets and all of his finances. And he, he is the boss of the Colombian right wing at the moment. So they'll still do whatever, whatever he says. I don't anticipate that the trial is going to be done before the election. Uh, I think they're probably going to try and stall it as long as possible. But look, again, you know, the same thing happened in Peru with Keiko Fujimori. It took a very long time, but eventually she did end up being sent, uh, getting sent to jail. So, you know, hopefully, we can, we can hope that Uribe will be held accountable for his actions. Well, thank you once again, Sasha. Thank you, Jan. Always a pleasure. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. In stunning reversal, protests leave Sri Lanka's ruling dynasty teetering. In 2020, Mahinda Rajapaksa won elections to become Sri Lankan's Prime Minister, serving under his brother and President Gotabaya. In 2021, another sibling, Basil, was named Finance Minister, tightening the family's hold on power. Less than a year later, the country's preeminent political dynasty is in trouble as protesters take to the streets, making demands that would have been unthinkable before the economic crisis struck, that the president steps down. How much of the economic crisis can be placed at the feet of the Rajapaksa dynasty? And how powerful has this dynasty been in the island nation of Sri Lanka? To answer these questions and others, I spoke with Lionel Bopuji, former leader of a mass liberation movement, eventually forced into political exile, now living in Melbourne. Lionel, how far back can we trace the Rajapaksa family and its influence in Sri Lankan politics and the economy? I mean, Rajapaksa family has been in uh, politics uh, for a very, very long time, starting probably in the 1930s. But then there are branching of this Rajapaksa family in different ways. They were progressive part of Rajapaksa family, but then, you know, they have been either isolated or disappeared from the scene for um, some reason or other. This Rajapaksa family is a branch of from that Rajapaksa family which started poor when they originally started in Hambantara district uh, in Sri Lanka, that is uh, the southernmost corner of Sri Lanka. 
they should have been in the 1950s and so on. Then gradually, uh, this uh, Mahindra Rajapaksa family came into the scene, properly seen maybe in the 1990s, 1988, 1990s. I had an interaction with him, Mahindra Rajapaksa. He was at that time one of the ministers, I think. He was uh, trying to influence me. He <laughs> had a meeting, but uh, uh, was able to wear away from <laughs> that influence. Since that time, there have been many stories about how the Rajapaksa family has been driving their election campaigns. He has been very popular, in a sense, uh, in Hambantara district as an elected MP for such a long time. But at the same time, I have heard horrible stories about how this election campaign uh, through many crimes, I would say, uh, without going into detail, because uh, some of them may be allegations. Uh, and those allegations include murder. The main point in my memory is when in the year 2000, when uh, Ms. Chandrika Bandarmaik was the president of the country, there was an attempt to bring up a new constitution, and a constitutional package was drafted by Dr. Neelan Tiruchalam, one of the brightest uh, Tamil intellectuals. And uh, then uh, from uh, the southern side, Dr. Gampati Vikramaratna, then I think there were many other people involved. That constitutional draft was mainly addressing the major issues in Sri Lanka, not the economic ones, but the national question, you know, sort of with regard to the rights of non-majoritarian communities in Sri Lanka. And uh, that was opposed by Mahindraj Bhaktan group. That is how uh, that was defeated. The regime at that time couldn't even bring up that bill to the parliament for discussion. Uh, within the internal party discussions, that was uh, defeated and uh, Chandrika was not able to uh, bring it to the parliament. So that is... Uh, when I noted extra chauvinist character of the Rajapaksa family. Since then, Rajapaksa family has become stronger and stronger, not only politically, but uh, wealth-wise. There is a background. We can talk about that later. Politically speaking, in 2005, when Chandrika Bandarnaik's two terms as president was over, the SLFP gave nomination to Mahindra Rajapaksa as the presidential candidate. And in 2005, I think the JVP did something very, very criminal, I would say, in the sense uh, Mahindra Rajapaksa was uh, backed up. And it was mainly the JVP campaign that brought Mahindra Rajapaksa to power as the president. At that election, Mahindra Rajapaksa uh, family used some of the powerful people inside their party, like Mangal Samaravira and uh, somebody else, which I, I can't offhand remember the name. He met with an accident, the so-called accident, and he passed away. Some funds were uh, handed over to the LTTE, and LTTE was asked to boycott elections at that time, not to vote for any party, because if they voted, they would have voted against Mahindra Rajapaksa. But, uh, you know, by uh, convincing them to boycott the elections, uh, Mahindra Rajapaksa was able to win the elections and he became the president. 2007-8 period, there were 
very unfortunate incidents in Sri Lanka. Especially, I would say the LTT was also responsible for that. I can remember that uh, they cutting off water to some of the villages, single villages in the frontal area. That initiated the psychological warfare of the Mahindrajapaksa regime to convince Sinhala people that we have to militarily annihilate the LTT. That is how it started. So we can't blame only one side. What I'm saying is basically there have been mistakes done by many groups, all the parties to the conflict. Then Mahindrajapaksa was able to convince the whole world that there threat in the world due to extreme Islamic fundamentalist groups were rising and uh, Mahindraja Pakistan were able to convince most of the powerful countries in the world say from the Soviet Union to China, not, uh, the Russia, China, uh, America, India, Pakistan and so on. They all helped uh, Mahindraja Pakistan regime to defeat the LTT. They provide military intelligence, they had uh, naval cordons around Sri Lanka you know, so all the parties helped, and Mahindraja Paksa was able to militarily defeat the militant Tamil movement in the North and East, but that didn't defeat the just demands of the Tamil people, Tamil-speaking people, not only in the North and East, but in the plantation sector, Tamil people we identify as Malaya workers, uh, Malaya people. Uh, in 2009, uh, be, with the defeat of the LTTE, the Sinhala people, majority of the Sinhala people in the south started venerating the Rajapaksa family. And during that time, there had been uh, embezzlement of funds and they became uh, the richest. Most of them were highly affluent people, not only in Sri Lanka, in the world. Recently, in Pandora papers, there was some exposure as to how they uh, took away money from uh, Sri Lanka funds. There are allegations that uh, they have invested this black money in many places. Some of the money may be in um, what is also the silence uh, where Malcolm Turnbull also have some funds. And uh, in Uganda, in uh, Maldives, in uh, many other places, even in Australia, there are investments, uh, not only by Mahindra Paksa family, but also by many politicians who have been able to siphon the wealth of Sri Lanka, use that as investments in Australia. In that way, Australia is also becoming a famous place for investing black money. I saw a figure of $5.3 billion that the Rajapaksa family had taken out of the country. Where does all that money come from, from for them to take it? There are um, several ways they have done it. According to the information uh, available in public, public knowledge, they have used uh, many uh, ways of accumulating funds. One easy way was um, through Chinese loans and contracts and uh, investments and so on. Whenever there is a project, not only from China, any uh, party uh, who is coming from overseas to invest in Sri Lanka, there have been many instances where uh, information is in public domain. Rajapaksas have demanded very high commissions. As far as I remember, they have asked sometimes 40% to 80% commissions of whole projects. 
So that means the people who conduct these projects, so you know, uh, manage these projects, are not able to achieve whatever the outcomes, uh, project outcomes. So uh, some of the people have refused outright, and they they didn't want to make investments in Sri Lanka. But according to what I heard, say for example, these highways they built using Chinese investment, they provided um, high commissions, and you know from the contracts they have uh, given cuts to the family. Then at the same time, they forced out some of the uh, rich families in Sri Lanka, and they forced them to hand over their wealth to the Rajapaksa family. Now, there is an email which is uh, circulating now at the moment where one of the richest families in Sri Lanka was Lalit Kotalavala. This uh, Selinko group, they were a very rich, uh, one of the corporations like in Sri Lanka. And Lalit Kotalavala was taken into custody. He, he, he is an elderly gentleman. He was ultimately, what he says is, uh, he was forced to hand over all his wealth to the Rajapaksa family. No wonder he has become a billionaire. And then uh, through other means, you know, sort of uh, in Kalambu, I think there is a racket going on and uh, there are um, lawyers involved, uh, there are banks involved. They are all associated in ripping off land, highly valuable land, not only in Kalambu, in several areas in, uh, other, uh, in the whole island. They redraft deeds, and uh, there are some people in the courts who are involved in the judiciary as well. There is a, a huge racket which has uh, enabled Rajapaksa family to uh, acquire land. Otherwise, how could an ordinary family who started their lives as simple uh, human beings in Hambantote within uh, two, three decades become the richest in Sri Lanka with many properties, many investments, almost everywhere in the island. Their salaries won't, uh, won't enable them to achieve such a status as MPs, as ministers, even as a prime minister. Or their salaries are not enough. They are, they are whatever they, they get as a perks even. They can't account for them. There is no way in Sri Lanka we can ask for that sort of information. They refuse to give that information. And there is no way we can find the proper means of transparency and accountability to investigate or to uh, find out what the real situation is. What is the connection between the Rajapaksa family and the military? The main person who is in the, who was in the military is Gotabaya Rajapaksa, who is the current president. He joined, I think, uh, I, mean, I can't exactly remember the year, but uh, probably in the 60s or 70s he joined the military. And then uh, he grew up in ranks. I think he became a lieutenant or so. But within the Sri Lankan armed forces, it is not only the Rajapaksas who have influenced from the very beginnings. I would say from the 1950s. I could remember when I was school kid in 1956 when there were fasting campaigns in the north and east. Uh, people, uh, Tamil leaders who, come, who were coming to Colombo to fast. There were uh, non-violent campaigns to protest against the government policy of official language and whatever other means the government used to discriminate against the Tamil community. 
uh, there were uh, non-violent protests. I remember uh, Mr. Vandarnayaka sending his uh, uh, relation, Udugama, Colonel Udugama, to uh, the North and East, asking him to do whatever he could to suppress the opposition. And actually, that is how this uh, repressive movement started, using the army to suppress any opposition in the North and East. That, um, you know, intensified gradually, and uh, it has come up to uh, later on, you know, sort of a very, very highly repressive situation. Now, coming back to Rajapaksa family, uh, the influence uh, is uh, uh, Gotabe Rajapaksa was a prominent person of the Gajaba Regiment. Gajaba Regiment of the army has the most influence from uh, Rajapaksa family, and they are the people who are used sort of a risky situation to safeguard Rajapaksas. In 2009, with the defeat of the LTTE, I think the nationalist forces within the uh, armed forces played a major role. I will just cite uh, one, one, one incident. When there were Timpu talks uh, between the LTTE and the government, uh, that were peace talks uh, to de-escalate the situation, there were certain conditions agreed by the Sri Lankan government sending some of the essential items needed to the people in the north and east of Sri Lanka. So they agreed to release some of those censored items, like, I think, cement for building houses and so on. It was the armed forces who, at the ground level, blocked that whole thing. They didn't allow whatever the agreement to come into force. So within the armed forces, there is a strong nationalist, pro-Singhala current, which blocks all the attempts to de-escalate tensions among the communities in Sri Lanka, especially against Tamils and Muslims. You know, sort of whatever the problems, whatever the solutions, even the governments have been trying to, they have sabotaged. It is a serious situation, and still after 2009, the influence of Rajapaksa family has become very strong. Within the armed forces, I think their influence became intense after the war in 2009. Uh, currently, there is a strong section, including people like Shavendra de Silva and some others who are supporting the Rajapaksa family to the hilt because security forces have been provided with business opportunities, investment opportunities, and they have been given very plum positions in diplomatic uh, services and so on. What I'm saying is, even in the security forces, you know, sort of like, for example, in the North and East, they have started business ventures, uh, like uh, farms, restaurants, uh, tourist hotels, and so on. The topic for discussion is the present crisis in Sri Lanka, and I'm speaking with Lionel Erpuji, former leader of a mass liberation movement in that country. Like in Burma, Myanmar, military has been given some opportunities so that they also have become one of the privileged classes or the elite in the security forces. They are also part and parcel of the uh, ruling elite. They are not only politicians, the bureaucrats, there are uh, some bureaucrats and some of the people in the security forces, they all work together. Does the Rajapaksa family also con- have contacts with the, the far-right Buddhist movement? 
Yes, that is what I mentioned. You know, sort of a single far-right, single uh, extreme movements. I mean, it is a worldwide trend. You know, sort of far-right movement views uh, extremism in terms of ethnic differences or religious differences, and they make use of those into power. Sometimes they create incidents where, you know, that will heighten tension and polarize, fragment the society so that, um, I mean, I think we all know what Trump did, uh, what Putin does, what, you know, sort of say, uh, in terms of uh, raising nationalism. In Sri Lanka, it's the same situation, but it is much worse in the sense the Easter bomb attacks, which will be three years for that event uh, on the 21st of uh, April. Those incidents helped the nationalists to come to power. And uh, that was helped by the Buddhist monks, the extreme Sinhala far-right chauvinist groups, and they created those groups. Sometimes there is information that those extremist groups are funded by the intelligence agencies of the government, and uh, like Ravana group. And then there was single railway and so on. I don't know. I mean, the, the, I can't uh, exactly say whether they are government agents, but uh, there is in, in, in public, there are reports that some of those extreme organizations were funded by the military intelligence and other intelligence services of the government of Sri Lanka. They have been creating incidents, uh, you know, sort of against Tamils, against uh, Muslims, and uh, they create something and then arouse nationalism and, um, um, you know, anti-Tamil, anti-Muslim sentiments in the south of Sri Lanka. Those sentiments have been used for certain extreme groups to come to power. Well, look into what they are encountering at the moment. It's described as the worst financial crisis since independence. How has it got to this stage? We have, we have to look at the crisis uh, initially, say, 74 years back, when uh, Sri Lanka was uh, given independence by the British. At that time, due to uh, certain factors, Korean War and so on, there was an economic boom. And at that time, the, the situation in Sri Lanka was not bad. I would say pretty good. In the sense, you know, people were given uh, subsidies and uh, education was free, health was free and, you know, all sort of things. But then uh, after the uh, Korean War boom, end of the Korean War, the situation changed because we were exporting tea, rubber and uh, coconut. Rubber uh, prices were very high during the Korean War and the prices came down in the uh, world market. And that affected Sri Lanka pretty badly. The government, instead of uh, cutting down the unnecessary imports uh, that went to satisfy the needs of the ruling elite, the affluent sectors of Sri Lanka, they didn't cut down that. But what they did is they tried to remove concessions or subsidies that was given to ordinary people, the workers. And that is how the strike, general strike in 1953 came. It created the situation and uh, however, you know, the, the whole thing didn't succeed because we weren't able to get into the government at that time. But, uh, you know, so the, the removal of subsidies was temporarily stopped. But then at different stages, uh, they tried to uh, get rid of those subsidies. And the ruling elite of Sri Lanka has been safeguarding their interests and privileges right through. And there have been imports. This crisis became because 
of the welfare policies of the government. No, it is not the welfare policies of the government. The people need to uh, be supported because people don't have uh, means of surviving. The issue was the imports were more than exports. That generally grew up, uh, they created the worst situation. From 1971 to 77, the crisis was so bad, the government stopped imports and closed the economy, imposed food restrictions and uh, no rice for people to eat, and they asked uh, people to eat potatoes and so on, and that created a strong opposition movement against the regime. But then that was used by the United National Party who advocated neoliberalist solution to the problem. When they were elected with five-sixth majority to the parliament, they created the neoliberal economy. They opened up the whole thing. You know, I I think that was the first time in the world a country opened up their economy 100% to investment. What happened is afterwards, um, the exports grew because there were some value-added products like uh, clothes uh, and uh, some other items. That generated somewhere. And then with the opening of the economy, there were opportunities. So uh, foreign exchange started uh, coming from uh, the people who are employed uh, overseas like that. And then there were opportunities for people to come to developed countries like uh, Australia, Canada, states, and so on. And uh, they are sending back money. So the situation uh, became uh, much more bearable, probably ameliorated in terms of intensity. We were able to carry on for a while. Then the situation got worse again uh, due to the war and uh, due to ruling elite embezzling funds. After 1977, with the imposition of neoliberal economy, the corruption became more uh, intensified. That doesn't mean corruption didn't exist before that. There was corruption. I have personally experienced corrupt situations in Sri Lanka in the 60s and 70s. But what I'm talking is, after 1978, after the imposition of neoliberal economy, the situation grew much worse. Charging commissions for each and every project, going out of the tender processes to hand over projects to their favorites, disassembling all the established industries in Sri Lanka. But at, say, for example, by 1970s, we had a good clothes uh, sector, tire manufacturing, steel, hardware, and so on. So those factories were dismantled and sold to the private sector. That way, I think, you know, sort of, uh, that created the situation where gradually it worsened because the ruling class didn't care for the ordinary people. Their subsidies were gradually, you know, sort of say, even if the lowest sections of the society were given, say, for example, 2,000 rupees a month, that is about, uh, say, less than $10, I would say, the purchasing power of that money went down the hill, you know, sort of as time goes, and uh, they are not able to afford. But the, the rich, the affluent, the elite, ruling elite, and the other people who are associated with that, their families, their collaborators, their henchmen, they were given the opportunity to exploit all the resources of the country by granting rights to uh, exploit, uh, say, from... Uh, um, sand to 
mineral resources, plantations, and so on. Grew worse. The imports uh, grew heavily, and that created the situation. And after, especially uh, the the government says that uh, the situation became worse because of the COVID situation and the Ukraine war. No, the crisis was apparent much before that, and the crisis has been there in Sri Lanka, growing. And then um, you know, sort of uh, governments will take some measures to ameliorate the situation, but then again, it grows. So the situation has become very bad now. It has developed into a situation where the government may have to go for a default, hard default, where the government is not in the position to pay back their debt, and not only the premiums but also debt service. You know the interest payments, not only for uh, overseas debt but also the domestic debt. The government is printing money, billions of rupees. Uh, the accountant was um, installed as, uh, that was a political henchman, he was installed as the head of the central bank of Sri Lanka. And uh, he doesn't have any understanding as about how economy works. So he just started uh, printing money. That printing money has uh, caused inflation, heavy inflation. The value of the dollar, for example, uh, I can remember in the 1970s, Seventies probably it would have been ten rupees a dollar, fifteen dollar, fifteen rupees a dollar. Now it has come closer to three hundred rupees a dollar. So inflation is very high. People are fighting because they can't survive. They don't have food. They don't have fuel. They don't have electricity. They don't have uh, paper to conduct examinations. They don't have healthcare. No medication. They are facing problems everywhere, and they can't survive. So people who are not associated with political parties, any political organization, they have come to the streets, and they are protesting. They are fighting for their survival. There are two things I need to mention here. One is the government's reaction has been to repress, but then that failed because the opposition created destability, instability within the government ranks. And some of the uh, MPs, I think about 50 or MPs moved away from the government ranks. That created a situation where the government has the simple majority, but not the two-thirds majority. The emergency that was declared by Gotabe Rajapaksa immediately after the protest had to be withdrawn because they couldn't get it approved through parliament. The protests have created the wave which uh, is uh, ongoing. Unless this is guided in a proper way, could ultimately end up in a bloodbath. And if we talk of bloodbath, this, this will be the fourth bloodbath if it occurs. Say, uh, government has been trying to make use of uh, every opportunity to repress these people, suppress the opposition, these, uh, these people who are protesting. And now, apparently, from my view, government is trying to create an opportunity to do so. They might use psychological warfare. You know, they will create an incident. As they did in the past, there are many, many much information coming out that government is working out some sort of a, a strategy to uh, end up this uh, whole protest movement in a bloodbath. Yesterday, uh, Prime Minister Mahinda Rajapaksa, the brother of uh, brother of Gotabe Rajapaksa, addressed the nation. From that speech, I could get hints that uh, they have been war heroes. They did this uh, in 2009. What it implies is 
this is not something new we can uh, tackle the situation they may try to create a situation where ordinary uh, people in the society to move away from supporting the protesters it is it is a very serious situation i think the left parties and the people who want reform in the sri lanka who who are who are looking for justice and fairness need to concentrate on this focus on this and see in what way they could expand this protest movement so that something positive can be achieved at the end and many thanks to lonel perpche You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.